Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. My name is Amanda. For those of you who don't know me yet, I am the associate pastor here at Midtown, and I get the privilege of starting our Advent series. As Alex said, our Advent series, Advent is a time of the Christmas season that Christians observe in order to anticipate, to slow down and wait for the future arrival of Christ by remembering the first arrival. And although it seems a little counterintuitive to the festive festivities of Christmas, it is an important practice waiting is. And in our waiting, we focus on the themes of hope, peace, joy, and love, along with the rest of the global church. Have you ever really had to wait for something? A lot of things kind of come to my mind. Um, one of them is Christmas. I don't know about you guys, but I get a little impatient around Thanksgiving. Um, if you guys have been here in the month of November, you will notice we were not patient around here. We decorated a little early. Um, I'm not patient for food when I get hangry, you know? You ever had to wait for food? I am not very patient, generally speaking. Have you ever had to be really patient and wait for an opportunity to open up? for work or for life, you just waited a really long time. Have you ever had to wait for the season to pass? I don't know about you guys, but I'm one of those people who waited for summer to pass so we could get to winter. So all of you who are waiting winter to pass, sorry, you're gonna have to hold on. We're gonna enjoy winter for a little bit. Anybody ever had to wait for that last minute of work to pass? I swear it gets longer. Or when you're working out and 60 seconds suddenly becomes six minutes. I don't know how it does that, but it does. You know the old saying, patience is a virtue. It is not a virtue I hold, unfortunately. And according to a Forbes article written by Sarah Landrum, patience is not only a virtue, but it sets a good example for others. It aids in decision-making, and it sets, it increases our success in life, so to say. And it even helps you think of waiting as a positive thing. Patience is pretty important. So basically, the more patient you are, the more patient you'll become. Sounds pretty easy when you put it that way, but a little hard to practice. And if we're being honest, patience isn't really easy, and it's not entirely comfortable. But it is biblical. And so today we're going to take a look at what it means to wait, what the Bible says about waiting and what the Bible says hope really is, and how to navigate the dark valleys that come with both waiting and hope. Our passage today in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5 and giving a little context to that passage here, we're reading a poem. Sam just read us a poem in these five verses. And if you guys were here in the summer, we went through a series through the Psalms. And we talked about how when we approach poems, we have to really slow down and pay attention to the details. We have to sit back and enjoy the imagery to really capture what the author is trying to communicate to us. So we're going to have to do that today. 
But before we do that, we have to realize that this poem is coming in the book of Isaiah written by the prophet Isaiah. And he starts off this book in chapter 1 with quite the word of judgment from God. It's a pretty furious and burning as a purifying fire from the Lord. God is condemning the Israelites to tear down their idolatry, to tear down their rebellion and their injustice. He goes as far, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 25, to say, I will turn my hands against you. God's going to throw hands, y'all. He was fed up, okay? He was fed up with their sinfulness. The Israelites had spent years disobeying God. He gives them direction. He gives them rules. He gives them commands. They start to follow them. And they say, well, what about this? I like this path better. And God says, well, come back over here. And they say, oh, no, what about this? And then they start to say, woe is me, God, how did I get here? And he's like, well, if you would come back over here, we could try it again. And they just keep on doing this over and over and over again. And if you guys like stories that are repetitive and have a little bit of flair, I strongly recommend the Old Testament. And once again, we're here with God correcting the Israelites. He's given them some rules to follow that are going to be helpful for them. They've gone their own way, and they're saying, woe is me. And God's corralling them once again, saying, okay, let's do this again. But this time, he's furious. He's fed up. He's told them, I'm done. Y'all do what you want. Throw in my hands. In fact, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're not familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, they're like the black sheep of the family. We don't, we don't really talk about them. Kind of like Bruno. We don't talk about Bruno. Do we talk about Bruno, kids? No. We don't talk about Bruno. If you know, you know. You don't want to be compared to them. But then, after all of this condemnation, you get to chapter 2, and we get this lovely poem full of imagery. You have Yahweh's house on a mountain. It's a refuge for all of the nations. It expresses this reign of God's kingdom. It's hope. It's this refuge that is a result of God's refining. You see this cycle that Israel's on of doing their own thing and God bringing them back. It's just this culmination of the cycle. It ends in this refining that God has done for them. And it ends on a hill in Yahweh's house. You see, God keeps his promise to Israel. He's faithful. He doesn't forsake them. Even when he's angry with them, even when he's ready to throw hands, he has every right to walk away. Israel broke their end of the deal, but God stays faithful. He keeps his promise. He even goes as far to not just keep his promise, but he actively refines Israel. But don't get me wrong, refining isn't a gentle process. It's not like he's gently corralling them here. He's putting them through the fire. Refining is this process of heating something up so much that it melts. It's completely melted down but it's melted in order to remove impurities so it can be made stronger, so it can be made pure. To be melted doesn't really sound fun, to be honest. Kind of sounds like torture. Um, but 
it is done with a purpose. And it eventually leads them to this peaceful mountain, to Yahweh's house. There's hope at the end of it. And oftentimes, that's just what life in the kingdom looks like. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense how you have to go through fire in order to end up in a peaceful place. Sometimes we feel very certain about knowing the right thing. We have the right answer. It's right in front of us. We're just like the Israelites and later the disciples. We have the right answer here. And God's like, no. He comes out of the woodwork with this answer we didn't even think of. Or he says the exact opposite to what we just said. And we're like, how can that possibly be? And instead of being able to just move forward and say, okay, well, I guess we'll move along. He says, nope, we got to pause. We got to refine first. We have to wait And the results of hope are often very similar. But before we can talk about the results of hope, we got to dig a little bit into what hope is first. You know, commonly in today's society, we talk about hope as a term of expectation, this feeling of anticipation, right? I hope there's going to be dressing, stuffing at Thanksgiving. I really love stuffing. Um, I hope mom's making her pie, right? I hope I get my healing. I hope good things are going to happen. And often, we're hoping for good things, right? No one's hoping for bad things out there. These are overly positive connotations we have with hope. And oftentimes, hope is entirely dependent on the outcome, which proves problematic, but we'll get there in a second. I love how author Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, hope comes, commits us to actions that connect us with God's promises. What we call hoping is often only wishing. We want things we think are impossible, but we have better sense than to spend money or commit our lives to them. But biblical hope is an act, like buying a field in Anathoth. Hope acts on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun, even when the appearances, especially when the appearances oppose it. Biblical hope means that my hope is not put in my circumstances, but it's put in the trust and waiting on God in spite of what I see and in spite of what logic tells me. The Hebrew words that are used for hope in the Bible and in this passage are kavah and yahal, both of which actually mean to wait. Kavah specifically here means the tension that is felt in waiting. That's what hope means. It's actually explaining this tension of when you have a band that you're stretching and you're pulling. And you're pulling it further and further and there's this tension. And as you're waiting, it's kind of like you're waiting for it to snap. You don't know when it's going to snap. You don't know when it's going to bend. You're hoping it doesn't snap, right? But it's this tension in the waiting. You don't know what's going to happen. And as I reflected on that concept, and I reflected on hope, I realized, isn't that what hope is? It's just this tension in the waiting. Hope is holding on to the tension of doubt, of trust, of faith, holding it all together, closing our eyes and just saying, okay, God, you can pull now. 
just waiting until the band stretches, praying, please, God, don't let it hurt. I hope it doesn't break on me. I hope it doesn't snap back. You see, our role in hoping is to wait. God's job is to pull. And if you take a moment to think about that when it comes to Christmas, it really puts the Christmas story in perspective and you really begin to understand Israel. Because, you see, imagine being the Israelites and you're people that are war-torn and weary and you're vagabonds. You're just traveling everywhere and you're fighting and keeping going. You've got 400 years of waiting, of wars. And you're like, okay, you've got generations, a full generations of these grand stories of how one day there's going to be a savior and he's going to rescue you and there's not going to be any more wars. There's just going to be peace. We're not going to have need. We're going to have fullness and plenty. We're going to have liberation and rescue. And you hear these stories just like kids hear stories about Santa. You're wide-eyed and full of dreams. And you have full of history. And the only thing that's keeping you going through these wars are these histories, these promises, these stories passed down generations for 400 years. And you happen to be alive in the generation that says, guys, guess what? A savior is born to you. Um, he's baby wrapped in a cloth. You're like, okay, great. We're going to have to raise him up, I guess. <laughs> Not exactly what we expected, but I guess we can work with it. You get a decade later and he says, yeah, I'm going to be a carpenter. Okay, you going to make some wood? That's fine. Have you seen Rome, though? Because they're kind of kind of fierce out there, but yeah, we'll give you, you can play with wood for a little bit. A couple years later, he says, yeah, I got some buddies. We're going to go play in the desert, maybe fish. I don't know, flip a table or two. Sounds kind of fun. Um, the Israelite people had spent generations fighting wars. The only reason they were continuing on to fight is because they were holding on to this promise that there was going to be a savior at the end of this that this was going to end. And what they got was a baby wrapped in cloth in a manger who grew up to seemingly become a carpenter and die on a cross. And while they see it in the moment as he was just an average man, he was just some guy who didn't defeat Rome, he seemingly didn't defeat their enemy. Jesus knew. A couple people knew. He, he convinced some people. A few people knew that he fought and defeated the real enemy, the greater evil. But most people didn't understand that. Can you imagine the disappointment of Israel? Can you identify with that? Have you ever had a moment with God like that? Where you're hoping for something you trusted God for something to happen. You held on to a promise from God. Something was going to happen, so you waited. You held on to the promise. And the longer you waited, the more disappointed you became. The more that doubt flooded your mind. Got to tell you, I have. You know, I was preparing this sermon. I really struggled because I felt like I needed to share bit of my journey. I really didn't want to, if I'm being honest. 
You know, I vividly remember in college, I had this moment where I felt called to missions. And I was in this place in my relationship with the Lord I had never been before. I was in a place of full surrender. I was doing those things. You'd say dangerous prayers, as they say. Lord, send me, I'll go. And I really was in a place of, you say the word and I'll drop everything and I, I, I go. And I was doing that. And one year that led me to Guatemala. I hopped on a plane. I got to be a part of this wonderful team for 10 weeks in Guatemala. Um, every week we had a new group from the States. A new youth group would come. Um, our premise there was to make friends with our Guatemalan friends. We were going to teach them how to build houses. And at night I got to host the youth groups and lead services. So by day I got to translate and by night I got to preach. So it was kind of my dream come true. It was everything that I had prayed for. And it was everything that I felt the Lord leading me to. I had prayed so hard about whether I should go to that trip or not. And everything was fine the first couple of weeks. Until one day, I remember getting, not being able to breathe. It's just a weird thing. And we went to the doctors and they gave me some medicine. Acted like everything would be fine. And as we left the doctors, I distinctly remember the Lord saying, it's going to get worse, but you got to trust me. And I thought, oh, Amanda, what a morbid thought. Move on. Whatever. And little did I know what was going to happen. A few days go by, taking my medicine, trying to behave. If you know me, that's not very easy. I'm not the best patient. But I was behaving. And a few nights later, I get done with my sermon, and I collapse. Knocked unconscious, and I almost die in Guatemala. They had to rush me to a hospital, which was a couple hours away, because we were in the middle of nowhere. And I don't remember much. I know my team was really scared. I know the days afterwards were very scary. And I remember having to be sent home to seek care. And I remember being so confused on that plane ride home. Like, God, didn't you tell me to come to Guatemala? Wasn't I doing what you told me to do? Wasn't this work about you and not about me? It felt like a promise had been take, given and taken away. The days of recovery were painful because I felt like not only that I had misheard God or that he was absent, but I felt hopeless in it. And the slow recovery was hard because it was hard to trust God's promises again after that. After that, it was like, okay, but if it happened in Guatemala, can it happen again? And what did trust me mean? Trust me, yay, I'm alive? Trust me, yay, this asthma might go away one day? Trust me, I'm still holding on that trust me means I'll get full healing one day. And I've got to admit, ever since that trip, my life has forever been changed. 
because I have dealt with at least three other sicknesses since then that are mysterious. They always take forever to diagnose. And as the Apostle Paul would say, sickness is the thorn in my side. And every time I feel the same promise from God, just trust me. I'll be with you, but just trust me. And every time I have that same little glimmer of doubt, if the Israelites had to wait 400 years and you showed up in a, as a babe in a manger instead, how long am I going to have to wait? And what is your miracle going to look like for me? Because it's clearly you don't show up when we think you are. You don't show up how we think you do. And I'm not saying that God causes bad things to happen in our lives. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am saying that the kingdom is flipped upside down. I'm saying that sometimes when we say yes to hoping in Jesus, we're saying yes to a crazy adventure that's going to test our faith and our trust in God. I'm saying that we're saying yes to a good good God, who does promise to never leave us or forsake us. He does keep those promises, no matter if we are able to understand them or not. He keeps them. He made us emotional people. He made us humans who have emotions, and as such, we get to be disappointed. We get to be angry. We get to be sad. We get to take all of those emotions to the feet of Jesus and not feel shame or guilt about that. We still get to take those to the Lord. And we get to be confused and we get to say, God, I don't like how you answered this promise. He can take that. If Israel waited 400 years and the Messiah didn't come, how they envisioned him. Guys, their response to their answer to prayer was to crucify Jesus. Talk about a poor response to an answered prayer. And God still met us all with grace. He can take your response to the promise. He's going to meet you there. Jesus didn't like the answer to the promise. He knew what was going to happen, and he still said, hey, God, take this cup from me. But nonetheless, your will, not mine. I encourage you today, don't let your emotions stop you from hoping. Don't let the fact that you're angry with how the promise was answered stop you from hoping. Don't let how long you've waited stop you from continuing to wait and hope. Wait angry. At least you're still waiting because I promise he's going to meet you in it. Because hope is not the outcome. Hope is actually the waiting. Worship team, if you could come back. You know, I was speaking with a dear friend and mentor of mine a few weeks ago. We were talking about hope and suffering and all of that. And he made this statement to me, and don't zone out when I say this, okay? Please stay with me. He said, you know you've made it through your suffering when you're able to be thankful for it. 
And to those of you who heard that and thought, that is so dismissive, let me first say, I will still sit and hate that statement with you anytime if you let me. But second, the only reason that I'm sharing that statement today is because I hate that statement. I have wrestled with that statement. When I was in deep suffering, when I had no hope, when I was angry with God, people would say that statement and I just raged. You obviously don't know what suffering is if you're gonna sit here and tell me that I could possibly be thankful for this. Yet at the same time, that never left my mind the whole time rang in my head you'll know you've made it when you can be thankful for it as I hoped as I waited as I reminded myself that God will not forsake me even if I think he has even if I look and see and I don't see him anywhere I remind myself of the promise he has not forsaken me. And I say this today because I have in fact found that statement true. And guys, I have also wished that I have not needed to know the truth of that statement. I have wished that I did not know suffering to be thankful to have survived. But I am so thankful for the depth of my savior who has shared in my suffering that I now know. I am thankful that Jesus has been with me in my waiting every step of the way, even when I was angry. Because the danger of the opposite is not hoping. It's giving into the lie that there is no hope, that there's only emptiness out there, that waiting is for nothing that this life on earth is nothing, that there really wasn't a savior who came and defeated death. But you see, the living hope that we actually have is found in Jesus' resurrection. And I love how the Bible Project puts it. It says, Christian hope is a bold choice to wait on God, to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. And I don't know about you, but I want living hope like that. I want living hope that's gonna shape me. I wanna make bold choices to wait for God. And don't get me wrong, I'm still in the midst of hoping today. I wake up in pain daily. It's a struggle to walk sometimes. Holding this microphone right now is a struggle. Holding a toothbrush is a struggle sometimes. And I don't say that for your sympathy, but I say that because I know how difficult it is to stand here and say, I hope while I doubt. I hope while I'm scared. I hope and I'm waiting for a promise even if it feels like I'm waiting for 400 years. The significance of biblical hope is that there's tension in this waiting.
And hope is found not in the end, in the positive outcomes or in the outcomes that we've imagined and hoped for, but hope is in the Jesus that I find in the valley waiting with me and in the curious, unexpected outcomes. Hope is in the Jesus that I have found in my weary soul that's holding me, waiting on the other side, win or lose, no matter my perception of that. And Advent is a time when we get to remember what we're waiting for. We remember why we have hope and who our hope is in. God promises he's going to be with us in the midst of the waiting and in the suffering. He turns the light back on. And I encourage you today, let your weary soul wait in Jesus. Hope in Jesus. Let your impatient and restlessness find rest in the Prince of Peace. And as we go through Advent, as we have time during worship today, I want you to seriously think through these questions that are going to be on the screen. Take this with you through Advent. Think through them today. What has increased my hope in Jesus today? And if we're being honest, sometimes what has decreased my hope in Jesus today? It's okay to think about that. And second, what promises are you waiting on Jesus to answer right now? What promises are you waiting on? Question these before God. Spend time in silence reflecting on them. Journal about them. And as you contemplate these questions today, we go into a time of prayer. I'm going to pray today's passage over you. There's a day coming when the mountain of God's house will be the mountain. Solid, towering over all mountains. All nations will river toward it. People from all over set out for it. They'll say, come, let's climb God's mountain. Go to the house of the God of Jacob. He'll show us the way he works so we can live the way we're made. Zion's the source of the revelation. God's message comes from Jerusalem. He'll settle things fairly between nations. He'll make things right between many peoples. They'll turn their swords into shovels, their spears into hoes. No more will nations fight nations. They won't play war anymore. Come, family of Jacob, let's live in the light of God. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.